Welcome to the recording of the 2022 Northwest Expositor Seminar featuring John Mark Hicks. This year's seminar is entitled Christiformity, Entering into the Life of Jesus. This is Lesson 1 from Monday, January 17th, 2022, entitled Jesus, the Dwelling of God, the Incarnate God, beginning with uh, co-director Jay Hawkins and then leading into our speaker, John Mark Hicks. Really glad to have John Mark Hicks with us. Um, he's been with us before, and I uh, can't exactly remember what year that was. But uh, uh, And his co-presenter, the year that he was here before, was supposed to be with us again. Uh, Alan Black from Harding School of Theology in Memphis was going to join us and do Gospel of John with us. And um, because of things related to COVID, he'd had to cancel... Um, months ago say that he wouldn't be able to come and so we weren't sure what we were going to do we went back to John Mark and said here's our situation can you give us more than just the four sessions you're planned to and so we talked that out and uh, John Mark came up with a great plan to make that happen really happy uh, that you did that for us and stepped in and um, are are going to um, yeah, give us a good workload this, this week. So, John, Mark, thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Uh, we're really looking forward to being with you and this topic in particular. Let's pray before we begin. Our Father God, uh, thank you that we are together. And uh, we need you to feed us richly through this time. Help us to be a blessing to each other. Um, just bless us with uh, words of peace and encouragement over these days. And we thank you for our brother, John Mark, and for the ministry that he has at Lipscomb University and through other avenues. Um, we ask that you be with him in his ministry to us uh, over these days. Thank you uh, for this critical topic and that now we have time just to dig in deep on it. Uh, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share with you, and um, what I have in mind is um, some conversation along the way, right? not, uh, uh, not just me getting up here and speaking for an hour or something like that, but, um, but to have some back and forth, some conversation, uh, sharing with each other in terms of, we're not going to break <coughs> up into groups or anything, but, um, but having your own input and listening to each other, as well as listening to me. And I'm really sorry that it's only me you have to listen to in terms of standing up here, because Alan, Alan's one of my best friends. Uh, I was so disappointed when he was not able to be a part. Um, but uh, I'm grateful uh, for the opportunity to, to be here and the availability to be here. So uh, I hope it works out. I hope you don't walk away saying, oh, I wish Alan was here. <laughs> I wish Alan was here, so maybe you should wish Alan was here, too. Um, 
but this this did give an opportunity for me to, to maybe uh, do something a little more um, a little more topical uh, in terms of what I'm calling Christiformity. Now that's not a word I invented. That's a word that's around around in the literature, Christiformity, uh, and it is. It is in part a, a little contrast with Christiform, Christiformity. Christiformity. Christiformity is being conformed to the cross, right? And, and there's certainly a legitimacy to thinking about being conformed to the cross. That the cross is um, something that should shape us. What Christ did in going to the cross, his obedience to the cross, his obedience in, the, in being crucified, certainly that should shape us. And it should shape us in, a, in what the theologians call the canonic sense, you know, the self-giving, the, the humbling that takes place in obedience even to the cross, right? Philippians 2. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting we ditch cruciformity. Right? My... My boss wouldn't like that, Leonard Allen, who wrote the book, The Cruciform <laughs> yes. Church. You know, he, he wouldn't like me ditching cruciformity, um, and I don't. But what I want to do is broaden that a little bit, and I broaden it by using the language that, again, I didn't invent it, but um, I think is appropriate, Christoformity. And I think and part of Christoformity is cruciformity. You could possibly say that cruciformity is the pinnacle of Christoformity. That is, being the self-giving, canonic, humble person who is obedient unto death is cruciformity, but that is a function or an expression of the larger picture of Christoformity, being conformed to the image of Christ. Not just in the cross, but in other broader senses as well. And so it's in that, that broader sense that I'm interested in um, for our sessions here uh, over the next few days. And, and it, it functions to, um, to illuminate something of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so the, it's, the, it's going to have that kind of practical dimension. And the more practical will be tomorrow afternoon. So don't get, don't get weirded out here in the next hour, okay? Uh, we're, we're going to get to the more practical. Uh, I'm just... I'm going to have to ignore you because, you know, you just... You know, <laughs> <laughs> okay? You know? If I don't, okay, if I, don't, if I don't acknowledge you... This is my acknowledgement of you. Check it out the list. Right. Um, you know, so <laughs> okay. You know, I was speaking at let's see where was he? It was in, uh, somewhere in Texas, and I was told, you know, one of the shepherds would get up and and do something at a at a certain time, and, and this shepherd. Um, I was speaking, I, and they didn't tell me how to end the sermon. You know, they didn't tell me what they expected at the end of the sermon. Um, and so I'm kind of concluding, and I'm, and I'm looking around like, okay, there's a shepherd supposed to be coming up here somewhere, you know. And, and the shepherd walked up, and, and he, he didn't look like a shepherd. 
You know what I mean? And he started walking up and said, I sure hope you're a shepherd. You know, but, oh, it was kind of made me nervous. You know, somebody just getting up and walking up toward the pulpit. That's kind of a weird thing. All right, but anyway, Christiformity um, is this broader notion of participating in the life of Jesus. Just being discipled by Jesus. Uh, we want to be conformed to the wholeness, the fullness of Christ. And so that's kind of the big picture I'm after. Now, and even saying that, there's no way we're going to be able to fill in that picture fully. Right? I mean, that's a lifetime of discipling. We're not going to be able to fill that picture in. So what I wanted to do is just off, open some windows into that world and uh, talk about it from the perspective of Christoformity. Um, what we're going to, what I will supply is, you should have a handout now. Everybody got a handout right now? Anybody need one? Um, at the end, on Wednesday morning, I'm going to give you two other handouts. And one of those will be kind of um, a fuller description of each of the sections we're going to be talking about. In other words, what I'm handing you here are just some notes and one-page Bible verses kind of thing. But what I'll hand you on Wednesday morning is a kind of um, two-to-three-page two essay on each of these. Which means, that, which means, for me, one, I'm not going to give it to you now because you'd be reading it while I'm talking. <laughs> I've done enough teaching over for 40 years to know that that's not very helpful. Um, but it's also something that um, probably I'll say something in those essays that I won't talk about up here. And I may emphasize something here that are not in the essays. So it gives you another angle on what we're talking about and gives you something to take home and as a resource uh, for however you might want to use that. And then the la there's another thing I'll give you on Wednesday morning, and all this is to help you stay to Wednesday, of course, um, <laughs> that you have some gift. You're anticipating some gift, you know, something that, that is going to change your world. You know, that, um, but the other thing that I'll provide is, is kind of um, what I wouldn't call the gospel. Uh, when, I, when I talk about the gospel, I don't mean just the death and resurrection of Jesus. You might say that's the pinnacle. I'm okay with that. But the gospel is the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus is, um, uh, has in significance and meaning for gospel more than just death and resurrection. Now, as soon as I say that, I want to add a lot of caveats because I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't want you to think, oh, well, he doesn't think death and resurrection is all that important. You know, no, 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 no I'm not, that's not what I mean. Uh, what I mean is that the whole of the life of Jesus is the gospel, which is exactly how the gospel of Mark begins, right? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the gospel. 
And we'll talk more about that. What does it mean to preach the gospel? Those are some of the things we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, what does it mean to, to be the gospel? Yeah. Uh, we'll be talking about some of that. Um, and so what I'll hand you at the, uh, also at the end is then this, this very brief uh, articulation of, of the gospel in terms of, of the, different, <coughs> the different movements in the life of Jesus. And if that doesn't make sense right now, it's okay. Uh, hopefully it'll make sense by the time we get to the end and, uh, and when you look at that material. So in other words, you'll have something to take home with you that, uh, that you don't get to read while I'm talking. <laughs> so that, that's an important dimension of it. Um, there's also another section in your handout, the, the second page. You can go ahead and look at that if you want. The second page is, um, this is what I call the theodrama. And this, this is not a word I invented again. I didn't invent this word. Theodrama, that is the God story, right? Theodrama, the God story, or the drama of God. Um, and when I think about the theodrama, I think, in, and I'm using the, the theater kind of metaphor here, uh, the theodrama is the story of God played out in various movements. Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4, Act 5. And, you know, this is not unique. A lot of people are doing this in terms of thinking about the story of God and how to, how to think of it as a unified plot, to think about it as a storyline from beginning to end. I don't use the word story here as equivalent to fairy tale. I use the word story as a historical story, a story about God's actions in history. Uh, but God's actions in history are the playing out, the working out, if you will, of God's goal, the goal of God. And if you notice, I go creation, Israel, Christ, church, new creation. And that may not be the exact language even, um, but it's five acts. And what's missing in that is, is um, sometimes... Um, some want to put a six act in there or, or some even leave out Israel you know? like the Apostles Creed doesn't even mention Israel and that's kind of a summary of the story in one way but it doesn't mention Israel I think if you leave out Israel you're leaving out uh, the very framework in which we should understand who the Messiah is uh, and who then we should be that's why we're going to talk about Israel Redux in our session later tonight. But I don't put the fall in as a separate act. Because it's a theodrama, from my, from my understanding. It's, a theo, it's about what God has done. We respond to what God does. Yeah, Adam and Eve responded. Tower of Babel responded. God acted in Abraham. Abraham responded. Israel responded. You know, the, the divine initiative and human response. The divine initiative has this purpose and this goal to dwell among and to fill. To dwell and to fill. I think that that's, that's the basic storyline. There are other ways of saying that. This is not the only way to say it. 
you know, my, my little rendition here is just one angle. You could, there are other angles. So this is not, this is not the way to say it. Right? This is just a way of saying it. But the way I'm trying to say it is, this is God acting. God makes the first move. And human beings respond. And they either cooperate with God and participate in what God is doing, or they resist what God is doing. And those are the two responses to God. A response of pride and resistance, or a response of humility and participation. Um, and I think that's a storyline we see all the way through. So I don't have a separate act for the fall. No, this is about theodrama. This is about God's doing and God's invitation for us to participate in what God is doing and God's investment in us with responsibility to, uh, in what God is doing. Uh, but we respond to that. We, we take on that responsibility or we resist that responsibility. And so it becomes a... Um, a story of divine initiative and human response, right? which I think fits with the big picture. We love him because? He first loved us. He first loved us, <laughs> right, exactly. So when my students ask me, you know, what is the doctrine of election about? And I said, bottom line, the doctrine of election is this. God took the <clears throat> initiative. Whatever else you say about it, Whatever other theory you might have in mind, God took the initiative. And in taking the initiative, God empowers and enables a response. Now, I'm not, I'm not the Calvinist who says then you know, God irresistibly does that. I am more of the, more of the Armenian type, quote-unquote, uh, who would suggest, well, and God... Seeks seekers. God seeks those who respond uh, to God's initiative. Right. So that's kind of, um, I wanted that, that picture on page two. It's, it's going to be a backdrop. So I would ask you just kind of read through it, reflect on it, and maybe we'll have moments where we can talk about it in a little more detail. But take some time tonight or in the morning when you wake up and uh, walk through it. Uh, don't do that now. <laughs> but do it sometime, and maybe it can be part of our conversation, and part of our dialogue, because I will probably be referring back to that as a, as a reference point uh, as we illuminate the, the larger uh, story. Because Christoformity, uh, I, I like to I, I think of it this way. Um, don't really want to mess up the board at the moment, but let me just do it like this. Uh, creation, uh, you know, I mean, creation, new creation. I'm going to erase this in a moment, but I want, to, I want you to see how I think about the flow here. God initiates in creation. Right? We don't create ourselves. God initiates. And, and God initiates in order to dwell among us. I think that's the whole point about the resting. When God rested. As Israel takes up that language 
like in Psalm 132, or Hebrews takes it up, the resting is about not about just cessation of work. It's about communion. It's about enjoying. It's about relating. It's about dwelling, right? So to dwell within the creation, to dwell, or to put, use the image of um, God built a temple, and now God has come to dwell in it, right? Like Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, uh, Israel says, we're going to build you a temple, you know, post-exile. We're going to build you a temple. And God says, already got a temple. <laughs> but, you know, the heavens are my canopy, right? And the earth is my footstool. And this is where I have come to rest. This is where I live. I don't need your temple. You know, I'll, I'll graciously dwell in your temple when you build it, but I already dwell in my temple. So there's a sense in which creation is God's temple and God comes to dwell in it. And then to fill it, which is part of the act of creation. God fills the creation, right? And what did he command? What did he tell uh, the human beings to do, male and female? God said to them and blessed them, Be fruitful, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill it. Fill it. Uh, and I don't think that filling, and I'm way off topic here. I need to get on with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but we need, I think we have to hear the filling, not just biological. Certainly it includes that, absolutely, right? I don't want to cut that out. But the filling is also, when you look at it through the whole field drama, what's, what did Israel do? Fill Egypt. What is Israel supposed to do? Fill the earth with the knowledge and glory of God by being a light to the nations. What is Christ going to do? He, in Ephesians 4, he's going to fill the earth, right? And what is the church supposed to do? It's supposed to fill the earth, right? Not just with bodies, but with images of God. And we fill the earth with images of God. So that the church is this missional community that is multiplying and being fruitful. And that very language that Genesis uses is exactly what Acts 6, verse 7 uses, and Acts 12, verse 24 uses, uh, and Colossians 1 uses to talk about how the disciples are multiplying. They're being fruitful and multiplying. So the idea that we are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is not just biological notion. It's about filling the earth with the glory of God. And as Irenaeus said back in the second century, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Or I might say, a, a human being flourishing within God's good creation. The flourishing of a human being is the glory of God. That's what glory, that's, God glories in that. God enjoys that. God takes delight in that. God rejoices over that, just as God rejoices over his creation. So that, that notion of initiating dwelling, filling, and God's call to us to cooperate with God, to co-work with God, to co-reign with God, to co-create with God. I mean, we have children, we're co-creating. Right? We're not doing it on our own. And we're doing something, right? We're co-creating, we're co-ruling, we're co-working. And that's exactly what we are in the church, right? We are co-workers with God co-laborers with God.
And it seems to me that's something to remember as we're struggling in these difficult times. When a lot of, we're, talking about, we're not just talking about ministries, we're talking about the workforce in general. You know, I read a stat the other day, one-fifth of all medical workers are getting out of the, out of the system because of the, just the stress and the struggle. I've read a statistic that one-third of all ministers are thinking about or have moved on or moved out of ministry or we're, we're, we're in hard times here. And leadership, leadership is not something that um, opts out of the hard times. Leadership moves into the hard times and works through them for the sake of the goal. Now, that doesn't mean everybody has to remain a minister or staff minister or something like that. No, there's bivocational ministers, there's me members of the church are ministers, you know. So I'm not saying someone who's thinking about leaving paid ministries is, is a bad thing, right? No, we each have our own circumstances. And, but if we're thinking about leaving ministry, yeah. We need to, it seems to me, we need to call upon the resources that God has given us to, to be participants in the mission of God as the servants of God. Whether we're elders, whether we're staff, whether we're uh, leaders in a church community of, of any sort of leader, we, we need to, uh, it seems to me, we need to remember the story that we have been called into a life of working with God. Just think about 2 Corinthians for a minute. I've been teaching through 2 Corinthians um, at my congregation in Woodmont Hills in Nashville. Um, and I chose it because I think it really speaks. I needed to hear it. That's why I chose to teach it. <laughs> you know, I, I chose this topic because I, I needed it. And I knew, it, I knew I would learn and grow by working through it. Because Paul's whole, part of Paul's point is... Ministry is endurance. Ministry is endurance. It's not a triumphal procession. It's not a rah-rah pep rally, you know. Ministry is hard. And that should not surprise us if we're being Christoformed, right? It should not surprise us that some people reject us. It should not surprise us if we suffer betrayals and heartaches. And remember, Paul's struggle with the Corinthians is the Corinthians think that if you're an ambassador of God, if that's what your role is to be an ambassador, an ambassador comes with pomp and ceremony. An ambassador comes with wealth and power. An ambassador comes with all the entourage and the accolades and the recommendations. And Paul says, I'll tell you what my recommendation is. It's God at work in your heart. That's my recommendation. That's my commendation. I don't have all these accolades. I don't have all these letters. I don't have all these credentials to present. 
What I have is I follow Jesus who died and was raised for us, and I suffer. And my resume is filled with anxiety and stress and hurt and opposition. That's my resume. So come on and join me in my job. <laughs> Enjoy it. Come on now. You know. Don't put that job description up. Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> no. All right, I went I, I chased a rabbit there. Um, but but I wanted to illustrate, okay, how this bigger arc really is important for what we are doing. And I forgot what I was doing up here because what I see happening in, you know, what we have in Israel and what we have in the church are communities attempting to live out that mission of God. And what we have in Christ is, in Christ we have a focal point. We have creation in the image of God embodied in Jesus of Nazareth. And we have in Christ the new creation at work already in the world. And so when we're thinking about this drama, the, the, the climax of the drama is in one sense right here. That's the climax. Because in Christ, all the promises of God are yes. Right? In Christ, God fully dwells. And Christ is the new human, the one who's been raised, and we will be raised like him, and our bodies will be conformed to his body. So in Christ, we have the climax in the middle of history, as it were. The new creation is revealed in Christ, and the creation, the mission, and the purpose of creation comes to fruition in Christ. And so Christ becomes the center, the climax of God's intent in creation and God's goal of creation. Right. <clears throat> At the same time, this Christ participates in our brokenness. Tempted in every way as we are. You know the story, right? Became a human being, um, shares our weaknesses. Knows what it's like to be hungry, thirsty, etc. So there's empathy here, but there's also God at work to fulfill God's purposes in creation and to accomplish them in new creation. So we have this ark. You know, that's the ark that is, well, we could be more direct line here. You know, the arc is from creation to new creation. And Christ becomes the center of that. So, that's kind of uh, what I'm interested in here with Christoformity. And, and it took way too long to talk about that. Um, because now I want to turn to what the handout is about. Um, and it doesn't give me a whole lot of time, but uh, we might spill over. Because I do want to give you opportunity to, to have some conversation here. So let me go about 15 more minutes, 15 more minutes, introduce this number one, or spill over into number two a little bit, and, but we'll finish two tonight, because uh, we want to stay on track. Um, 
So here's what I here's how I want to start out this number one. this. If you look at the this page, what three? Yeah. I'm drawing on the Gospel of John here clearly, and uh, just by way of um, introducing it. I want to take us to chapters 13 to 17 of the Gospel of John. In uh, chapter 13, we have the table. What, what's going on in chapter 13 about table? Passover meal. The what? Passover meal. Okay, there's a meal. Now, John doesn't identify as a Passover, but I think it is. And, but that's a whole debate. That we probably don't want to get too involved in. But yeah, I think there's a table, there's a meal. All right? There's a last meal with the disciples, right? Which Luke certainly thinks is a Passover meal. Um, what else is going on? Chapter 13. Feet washing. He's washing feet, okay? So he's giving them an example. An example of what? What do you what, what are some of the themes that emerge? I'm sorry? Servant. Servanthood. Humility. Humility. What other theme do you see? You've probably talked about this before, so. I know it's hard to remember some of the things we've talked about before. Uh, sometimes I have to say, I go, go, I gotta check my notes to find out what I believe about that. Because you know? <laughs> I don't remember everything I've ever studied. Um, example. Example. Yeah, example. Clean. Clean, right? You are clean. Sanctification, it's part of it as well. Absolutely, yeah. So a lot of things are happening at the table, right? Um, then we get table talk. We get the, you know, this is like 13, 1 to, and I might be wrong about this, to verse 30. Doesn't the, the table talk begin in verse 31 of chapter 13? Yeah. So we get this, I'm going to call it table talk for a moment. Chapter 13, verse 31, to chapter 16. What's the last verse of chapter 16? Is it like 27 or something like that? 16 what? 33. 33, okay. I think it's really helpful to remember that the talk, that some most often called the farewell discourse, right? But that is a table talk. That talk is against the backdrop of what happened here. That, that the context of that talk is table. Now, if you know anything about me and my interest in writing, and table is pretty important in my theology, in, in the way I think about church, and the way I think about community and, and communion. And here, I think John is, is John's discussion of the, John's unfolding of the table talk is uh, strongly linked to the context of being at table. Then we have chapter 17, 1 to 26. What, is, what do we typically call that? 
the, the high priestly prayer. Now, that's an interesting language, the high priestly prayer, isn't it? Uh, it's mediation, high priest, it's mediation. Um, it's also kind of Eucharistic. It's about Thanksgiving. It's about, um, about the intent and the goal that God has or Christ <coughs> has. And if you notice on page two of the handout, page three, excuse me, page three of the handout, you notice the, the, um, the parallels here of John 13, the beginning, 31 to 35, 13, 31 to 35, and 17, 20 to 26. Notice how they're kind of like bookends. John begins here and ends here on the same topic. It's as if to say the high, priestly, the high priestly prayer is to be heard in the context of the table talk, which is to be heard in the context of the table. Now I want to, I want to do two things with that. Um, and I'm going to talk about one of them, and then we're going to open it up for whatever you want to share. Um, and then I'll do the other after the break, and we'll, we'll start there. The two things I want to do is I want to talk about kind of the nature of salvation. Or for those of you who had some high-minded seminary professors, call that soteriology, right? right? And the other thing I want to talk about is the nature of unity. The nature of unity. Or ecclesiology. What kind of unity does, is God, is Jesus envisioning here in this text? We all know the text, right? John 17. It's embedded in our DNA as Stone Campbell's people, right? As restoration movement people. Uh, it's the clarion call that Alexander Campbell used in Christian Baptist, you know, that we might all be one. Uh, it's, it's part of the Declaration and Address of Thomas Campbell, certainly at the heart of Barton W. Stone. So this text has been deeply embedded into our um, group consciousness. Right? So I think it's helpful to think about that for a moment. So let's, let's start um, with the soteriology, and then we can move to the unity, the ecclesiology. And I, I want to, when I'm thinking about this unity, we're, we're thinking about, you know, the ecclesia, the church, the assembly, the community. Uh, the, the kind of unity that God envisions, or Jesus envisions in this text. But let's, let's start here first. And then we'll go to the other afterwards. Look at, um, look at the language. And I, I put this in poetic form, based on Robert Brent, Raymond Brown, as you can see the footnote. 
So this is not original with me. But if you look at the, the, uh, the form here, um, it helps identify how the two sections relate to one another. So not for these alone do I pray, but also for those believing in me through their word, that all may be one, as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe you have sent me. And then the next line is kind of parallel. That the glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, as we are one, I and them and you and me. That they may be completed into one. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. You see the parallels? The nature of the unity is... Well, I don't want to... Let's do it that way then, because I'm, I'm, I'm headed that direction. The nature of the unity is this mutual indwelling. The Father dwells in the Son, the Son dwells in the Father, and the nature of the unity is, and the nature of the salvation as well, is, is that mutual indwelling. The, and, the, and the purpose of that is not only the experience of the unity, but it is also has a missional purpose. The missional dimension here, that the world may know that you sent me. So there's a unity with a missional purpose. That, doesn't, that shouldn't sound unusual for us. I mean, we've been saying that for 200 years in the Stone Campbell movement, right? Restoration movement. <clears throat> But what is the unity then? Um, when we think about the unity, we tend to think in terms of, of conformity to something visible, a visible unity. That can certainly be part of what unity is. But when Jesus is thinking about unity here, he is thinking about this interpenetration, this sense of participation in the life of the other, to dwell in the other, as you dwell in me and I dwell in you, and as the disciples will dwell in me and, and dwell in us. So there's this mutual interpenetration that is the experience of communion, of relationship, and we get the, the definition of that kind of relationship by the way in which he talks about love. So he says, and have loved them as you have loved me. Or, if you go down to the next section, righteous father. Well, we can read all this, but I'm going to run out of time here. The world does not know you, but I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What's the goal? What is the goal? You know, we're talking about this unity, this oneness. 
this goal is for the love of God to be mutually interpenetrating, right? That the love that the Father and Son have for each other, that we become participants, we participate in that love, that we share in that love, so that it dwells in us and we dwell in it, so that we have the experience and the sense of connection with God that I am loved by God just as he loves Jesus. That's an astounding line, isn't it, in verse 23? That you love them, whether he's talking about the world or the disciples, probably about the disciples, that you love them as you have loved me. Now that, that's a that's a statement to ponder and meditate on. Because we all have a kind of a deep sense at times that we are unlovable. We know ourselves so well that unless we are really self-righteous, <laughs> you know, we know ourselves so well that we know that there are some unlovable things about us. And yet Jesus says that the Father loves them just as he loves me. That you, Father, love them just as you love me. Loving Jesus, I can understand. Perfect kid. Right? Uh, easy to love. Loving me? I, I got some good reasons for you not to love me. And I can lay them out for you. This is why self-forgiveness is so difficult, isn't it? Because love has not been perfected in us. We, we, we beat ourselves up and we look at all our, our regrets and our past and our struggles and we come to some conclusion that we're unlovable. And we remember those past statements we made and those dumb things we did and, and we have a hard time looking in the mirror. And we refuse to forgive ourselves. I went through a period in my life 13 years ago when I, I had that very deep experience of anger toward myself and uh, the, the inability to forgive myself. And I was working with a Christian therapist. And she asked me a very simple question, which I should have, you know, you start beating yourself up like, well, you're an idiot, Hicks. Why didn't you think of that? You know, <laughs> uh, you know do you believe God's forgiven you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't be a preacher if I didn't say that. <laughs> of course God's forgiven me. You think you know something he doesn't? <laughs> Forgive yourself. Because you are mutually indwelt by God. 
Christ dwells in you and you dwell in Christ. And when you're dwelling in Christ, you experience the love of God and God loves you just like he loves Jesus. Not just sort of like. Not just a little bit like. But just like. He loves Jesus. Because you see that mutual indwelling is the, is the experience of salvation um, that is the very goal of God's work. The very goal that God had in creation itself was to dwell and commune. We disrupted that with our resistance, right? We disrupted that goal, but what God has done in Jesus by becoming God incarnate and dwelling among us to dwell then to be the avenue, to be the experience of communion with Christ is communion with God. To dwell in Christ and for Christ to dwell in us is to dwell in God. And God has loved us in Christ. And the whole goal of creation itself is that the love that the Father has for the Son may dwell in us and we dwell in the Son and participate in that love. Or to put it another put it in a different metaphor. A metaphor that really arises out of the ancient church and the in the Eastern Orthodox Church particularly. God's love is like a dance where the Father, Son, and Spirit are communing with each other in this transparent, in this deeply vulnerable, in this transcendent, unimaginable, unspeakable sense of shared life together, loving each other. And it's a dance that they enjoy with each other. Kind of like uh, big, uh, you know, my big fat Greek wedding. Anybody <laughs> seen that one? You know, the ending dance there. The opa dance, you know, where they're... I say opa. I'm, Show us. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> you can do a Jewish dance if you want. Know, yeah. Think fiddler on the roof. And the but, um, the um, we are, God is reaching out to pull us into the dance, to draw us into the dance. I don't mean irresistibly or anything like that, not cooperatively, to draw us into the dance so that we become participants of the divine life. And I think that's ultimately what salvation is. It is participating in the divine life. To love and be loved to be filled with the love of God. And in that sense, to be sanctified and perfected by the love of God. And Jesus himself went through a sanctification, a perfecting, which we'll get to tomorrow morning. And that's part of our discipleship, is to grow into that love. Now, I've got more to say, but I want to just stop here because we need to take a break in a moment, but I want to see if you have any kind of Comment, response. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say uh, the unity that you're talking about with Campbell and Stone, and you know, he was more on 
let's get all the denominations together. Yeah. And and, and drop drop the creeds, drop all the mm -hmm. stuff, Bible names for Bible terms, and 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 and. and <clears throat> it's my opinion that, that it wasn't so much on let's, the unity point was the Bible, but the unity point wasn't as much. I don't know if I can be this, but love. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, it was, yeah. Let's unify around the Bible. He was using a very logical, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like Bacon and, mm -hmm. and yeah, and uh, Locke, you know, the, those kind of philosophies on, under the Bible. And, and mm -hmm. then this, this stuff, like, uh, there was a lot of trying to, I guess, evangelize the other denominations rather than mm -hmm. the pagan. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I, th I think, um, yeah, I think definitely when Campbell and Stone, given their historical context, when they thought unity, they thought of it in contrast to the denominational divisions. And so they primarily used the language of unity to kind of deconstruct those divisions and to seek a path uh, for uh, shared life, you know, to have, to have shared community. Let's baptize the same way. Let's have Lord's Supper every Sunday. And, and so, yeah, it became the expression of the unity became this visible conformity to what was regarded as a pattern yeah, we, for we, the we, church. Right? Sometimes I think, and, and not all systems are bad, but sometimes yeah. we put people through a system yeah. rather through a relationship. Yeah. Where the number one thing we're teaching is God's love. Mm -hmm. to begin with rather than forms and yeah you know, so and the thing I would I would I, I, I'm agreeing with you I, I would affirm that and, and at the same time I would want to say as well that the root is is the shared love right but out of the shared love comes a reflection on what does it mean to share love together in a community and how do we do that in a way that promotes that love and embodies that love and um, <clears throat> deepens that love. And part of that discussion may very well be what are going to be our practices? You know? what, are our, what are our practices? Which takes me to the very point I want to make about the Lord's Supper, which we'll do after break. But, but you're pushing me in that direction. I'm thinking about that direction as you're commenting. And um, I want to get there eventually. So I think, yeah, the nature of salvation is this participation in the love of God, participation in the life of God. And when we dwell in that together, we have a shared unity. We're already united because we share in the life of God. Now, how can we visibly embody that? How can we visibly embody our shared life and the love of God? Well, that includes actually being kind to each other. <laughs> you know? Um, you know, and it includes, and I want to argue here after the break, it includes a shared Lord's Supper, a shared Eucharist, a shared breaking of bread together, which I think is part of what's going on here. Uh, ultimately in the Gospel of John. But we'll get to that in a second. So, yeah, the root, but then the fruit, right? The, the root and then the fruit, yeah. 
when I think about the love of God, um, I share with you some of my own frustration with myself, mm -hmm. you know. But to me, what has helped me more than anything is realizing that God loves me at my worst mm -hmm. as much as he loves me at my best. And God doesn't love me. I realize he doesn't make joke, okay? Mm -hmm. But he doesn't love me because of who I am, but because of who he is. Mm -hmm. His nature is love. God mm -hmm. loves because we love because he first loved us, even when we weren't very lovable. Mm -hmm. You know, so I choose to define the God of loves as something that's based within him, despite who we are. Yeah. He loves us even when we were the objects of his wrath. Certainly you know? true. I mean, yeah, the, God is love. So uh, God is light, but God is love. And so it's, it's God who is initiating the love, not we who are initiating the love. And it is God who is working love in us, perfecting love in us. I mean, this is First John, right? Perfecting love in us. Uh, but it is God's love that's being, per that's being perfected in us. Right. But when it comes to self-forgiveness and self-love, um, which we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, so we need to have some self-love. Now, there's a bad kind of self-love, you know, mm -hmm. but there's also a good kind of self-love. And there's a self-forgiveness that um, is important to embrace uh, because of God, because God has loved us. Yeah. Did you um, have your hand up? Or yes. Okay. This mutual indwelling mm -hmm. of love is an invisible thing. Mm-hmm. Right? People can't stand outside and see that. Exactly. Exactly. But there's an endpoint in this that says, I think it's verse 23, so the world may know you have sent me. Right. The missional dimension. Right. So there's something that is physically or observably there. It's mm. part of this mutual indwelling. Mm -hmm. And it's got to be bigger than the church meeting because if all we're doing is behind closed doors, yeah. the world is not going to see that. Absolutely. So it's got to be more global. And so I'm wondering how that would. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, there's a missional dimension to this. I mean, it's, the love of God is missional, right? God so loved the world he sent. Right? Or he gave. So. God's love bears the fruit of mission. It is, it's driven by the love. It arises out of the love. And so if we are participating in the love of God, if we are mutually dwelling in the love of God, we're going to be on mission too. Because that love, the love of Christ, Paul said, what? The love of Christ compels us. And, and I take that to mean the love Christ has for us. That the love Christ has for us compels us. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians is so intent on, yeah, I know this is a hard thing. This ministry of reconciliation is really, really hard. But I am compelled by the love of Christ. That's what compels me. And if we're dwelling in the love of God, and the love of God is dwelling in us, it's going to be missional. It's going to have... Uh, visible impact. It's going to have visible expression. Which, if we go back to here, what's the visible expression here? We all know this text. Verse 34, particularly. Yeah. This is how they will know. If you love, you love one another. 
Yeah, that you love one another. This is how they're going to know. This is going to be the visible sign. This is going to be the visible marker that you love one another, that you wash each other's feet, that you're at table with one another without fighting and devouring each other, that you go through a COVID and not split the church over your own political or um, mask requirements or whatever, you know, that we can find a way to love one another in the midst of this discussion. Even when we disagree about it, we can find a way to love one another. You're making a good point. Yeah. You're making a very good point because the unity is not based on whether you're Republican or Democrat or Trump or Biden. Or yeah. That's not the unity point. Yeah. Or whether we agree or not. Yeah. And I certainly don't want to make that the focus of our discussion here, okay? <laughs> that's, not, that's not the point, right? We could use other, instant, other things, right? But yeah, that we love one another even when we disagree. We don't stomp out on each other. We don't curse each other. We don't condemn each other. We love one another. Even in the midst of all that. What about loving your enemy? Too? And loving your enemies, absolutely. That's part of it too. Absolutely. We need to take a break. I'm sorry. I'd love to, I'm going to leave more time for discussion. I hope. We'll see. But let's take a break for about, what, 15 after? 15 after, yeah. yeah. We'll start again. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this recording from the 2022 Northwest Expositors Seminar. The Expositor Seminar is held each year at beautiful Camp Yamhill in Yamhill, Oregon. It's directed by Mark Johnson and Jay Hawkins. We'd like to express thanks to the Northwest Endowment Fund, which provides some funding for the Expositor Seminar each year. I'm Kevin Jensen, your recording host. Thanks for joining us for this lesson. We hope to see you at the Expositor Seminar next year.